some nights, uh, you know, going through the moon cycles out there, there was obviously no moon at times. And, and when it was a clear night, the Milky Way was just absolutely jumping out of the sky. You know, there was no, obviously no light pollution. You know, I could see these, you know, huge bands of stars and... This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 257, Gavin Hennigan is back to tell us about his 3,000 nautical mile row across the Atlantic Ocean. Hey, I wanted to welcome our newest vendor to the ASP Member Deals site. It's B4 Adventure. You guys have heard about this company before on our outdoor retailer episode. B4 Adventure makes the Ninja Slack line that we talked about. They also make other zip lines and slack lines. So go to the ASP Member site and check them out. You can get a 15% discount. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. All right, you guys know this guy. He is Gavin Hennigan, and we've had Gavin on the show back in episode 159. He was here to tell us all about his uh, Lake Baikal um, trek. It was a frozen Lake Baikal, and he did 440 miles across that lake, uh, solo and unsupported. So he was on our show to talk about that. If you want to hear that one, go back to episode 159. It's from April of 2016. Um, but since then, Gavin has been up to a, a few cool things, and I wanted to have him back on to talk about that. And we will dig into it later, but that was his solo Atlantic row from the Canary Islands off the west coast of Africa to Antigua in the Caribbean. So we're going to dig into that a little bit later. But before we do that, Gavin, we've had a ton of listeners added to our show, so I wanted to go back and kind of revisit what got you into adventure to begin with. So first of all, welcome back to the show and happy St. Paddy's Day to you. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Cheers, Travis. Good to be back on the show. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day from a very wet and rainy Ireland. <laughs> That's no surprise, is it? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, look... Um, yeah, I suppose, uh, obviously, as you said, there's some new listeners. So just going back um, to how I ended up uh, getting into adventure and all the travel that I've done. Um, uh, in my teenage years, I, I got quite heavy into alcohol and drugs um, and had a really roller coaster few years. Uh, ended up using heroin, living in squats and getting in all sorts of trouble. Um, culminated in actually living in a furnishless apartment in West London after leaving Ireland for being on the run from um, getting in trouble with drug dealing, uh, living in this like little apartment with no furniture and just sleeping on a mattress on a ground with, there was no curtains on the, on the windows. I had uh, black bags just blacking out the windows, uh, trash bags as you guys call them. And um, yeah, just waking up in the morning and just getting stoned and going back to sleep again, not even knowing if it was night or day. It was just like a dark little hole. And I remember even hearing the the letterbox going as as the, the, the post came through there, the mail, and just it used to fill me with fear because that was like reality. That was having to deal with life, and I was just so afraid. And um, 
yeah, it was a really tough few years, but I, I ended up going into rehab at 21 um, and managing to get clean. And uh, remarkably, I've stayed clean for the last 15 years. So uh, it's been an incredible journey. Um, I think after about three or four months of, of, of being clean, um, there was a friend of mine who, who was also on the straight and narrow and he, um, he was also trying to, trying to stay clean and we both decided we were going to try surfing for the first time. So he pooled his money together and I pooled my money when we didn't have very much at the time and he bought a board and I bought a wetsuit and, um, surfing in the west coast of Ireland is, is an experience to, uh, <laughs> to behold. So we took, <laughs> we took off down the coast in the middle of November to try this uh, new sport in, in the, you know, this is 15, nearly 15 years ago. So it hadn't really been happening in Ireland. And, uh, yeah, we jumped in and, and gave it a go. He tried it first and, uh, then I tried it afterwards. Had to get, of course, get into a wetsuit that was full of urine. But, uh, yeah. So then, um, just after that, I suppose it was, it was, it sparked something in me and that was to, you know, get out and do more things and try all these sports that I kind of always wanted to do. Uh, when I was drinking and using drugs, but um, you know, I just didn't have the self-esteem, the belief, or the drive really, because I was just so battered from 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 using and drinking all the time. So, um, yeah, really, uh, after I got clean, adventure saved my life. Really, just in all forms, and um, I've never really stuck to one thing. I've surfed for many years. I've snowboarded. I've mountaineered. I've snowboard mountaineered. Uh, I've ultra running. Um, you know, long treks like we just spoke about there, Lake Baikal, and uh, yeah, in the last couple of years, started uh, rowing and got into ocean rowing and managed to uh, just row across the Atlantic just recently. You just like that, you just just decided to get a boat and just uh, enter into a race and and take a um a fifty day trip across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> yeah, not not as simple as that, but right. yeah, it was actually my first rowing race, so I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you went from these dark days in life as a teenager to kicking it and being 15 years free of it and becoming a rower, obviously, ultra runner, ultra runner snowboarder, mountain climber, uh, split boarder. So you've done a lot of things. So you obviously have found that adventure sports can can dig you out and hold you out of those addictive days. And I think that I love that story and I wanted you to go back into a little bit just so our new listeners can hear it because I think hopefully that can provide uh, a little inspiration for some others who may be listening in that uh, are finding themselves in the same place that you used to uh, to find yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a good message and yeah, I think it's just important to to highlight it. Yeah, just as then if it just helps somebody else if if one person is listening now and and they're, you know, in a similar situation or they know somebody and yeah, you know, I, I suppose some people remark that, you know, that I've like swapped addictions and I don't really like that term, you know, because now, you know, I've got this passion and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, such a great thing to, to love the outdoors like we do and, and to be able to go out and, and do it and, and just, I suppose, uh, really just, you know, give up your life for this sort of passion. And I think that's, that's a really important thing to really just follow it no matter what, you know, the idea with me wanting to row across the Atlantic was sparked by reading a book and, you know, I work in adventure. <laughs> um, I, I was a commercial diver, you know, after I got clean and sober and, and spending a couple of years sober, 
I went to Australia and I learned how to be a commercial diver. So I spent 10 years, like we spoke about in the other show, uh, working as a saturation diver all over the world, doing like heavy construction at 600 foot, 700 foot in West Africa, Middle East. So I've had this amazing, amazing life. Um, and it was all, you know, going according to plan um, up until probably about 18 months ago when I was made redundant because uh, the price of oil dropped and I had all this money saved up um, and I was kind of at the point in my life where I thought I probably should do something sensible like buy a house or, you know, really think about my future. But I did the complete opposite. I actually decided I was going to gamble my life a little bit and I decided that I was going to buy an ocean rowing boat instead of buying a house. <laughs> So, so that's what I did. And, um, yeah, I spent, you know, the best part of 18 months, uh, learning to row, training to row, um, and, you know, entering this race called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is, um, you know, billed as the world's toughest row. It's, it's, it's a race, uh, 3000 nautical mile race across the Atlantic. Um, it's got solos, pairs, threes, fours in it. Um, and I basically, yeah, sacrificed absolutely everything <laughs> to, to do this race. Um, and yeah, I just finished it on February the 1st, so not so long ago. Wow, what an amazing feat. So you decided to fund your boat yourself. I mean, most of us looking in would think, well, of course he found a sponsor, and the sponsor has provided his boat. But this is, you bought this thing outright, you own it, and this is, for all intents and purposes, your house? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's, you know, I, I saw it as, a, as an investment into myself and into my future, and I didn't know quite know what that future was going to be. And I think that's that's an important point as well. I, I, I just said to myself, right, well, this is either going to open doors or worst case scenario, I go do something else afterwards. Um, and you know, I've been trying to do like a bit of public speaking and, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm sort of just about able to call myself an adventurer as a job title at the moment, because since the row, things have kind of, um, you know, started to happen. Doors have been open for me, but yeah, the lead up to it was very tough. I kind of, uh, naively assumed that I'd be kind of getting sponsors left, right and center. But um, it was a tough sell here, here in Ireland, you know, um, for, for companies. And I actually ended up funding probably about 90% of, of the of the row myself. And uh, but going forward now, I'm, I'm starting to see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. I'm you know, starting to get more interest, um, you know, but that stuff takes a lot of time. You need to build up kind of pro profile social media and stuff like that and, and get the right connections. So it's it's uh, it's starting to work out slowly but surely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're on your way. Good for you. So you had told me on the, um, we did a, a catch up, you know, a, uh, where are they now episode. Um, and you had told me on that episode how this idea was born to row across the ocean. You just alluded to it a, a few minutes ago, but you were reading a book, but where you're reading that book was down in your, or in your decompression chamber, right? So tell me a little bit about that, about the inspiration to, to decide to row. Yeah, so just you know, to give people a little bit more information, the the diving that I did, the type of diving, is I, I worked I worked in the oil industry, um, and it's you know, uh, it's called saturation diving, and basically involves going inside a small chamber and then being pressurized inside that chamber, and then living in that chamber for up to a month at a time, and then we go from that chamber into a diving bell, which takes us from the the diving support vessel that we're on down to the bottom. We get out, we go to work for six to eight hours, we come back, and we just spend our few weeks going up and down working away and then at the very end we spend up to maybe sometimes nine ten days decompressing so to come back from these depths it takes a long long time you know it can take usually around a week if not more 
and um, it's a very kind of small enclosed space similar to a, a little boat <laughs> and um, yeah it's it's not the nicest place to be but it earns the money um, but I find myself really daydreaming and coming up with ideas and looking for inspiration um, within that chamber uh, for me to go out and do stuff uh, after I finish work so you know, I spent all these years working as a diver and then I'd, you know, come out and I'd have a couple of months off and I'd take off to like Alaska split boarding or I'd be like down in Antarctica or I'd be doing some crazy ultra race. And um, yeah, I got this idea to row the Atlantic from reading a book I just picked up in the airport on the way to work. It was a really cool book called Salt, Sweat and Tears by Adam Rackley. And it's uh, about him and a friend who rode the Atlantic in the same race, but it also gives a really good uh, history into ocean rowing and, and the first men who did it. And you know, just the full background into it. And yeah, it just really sort of caught my attention, the whole the whole thing. And I, and I had this little kind of spark inside me and it was like, well, maybe I could do that. And I suppose it was just kind of born out of that little little spark that I said, yeah, let's, let's look into this. And I think I signed up um, before I could really start, really think it through. And I think I remarked a few times uh, during the year last year when things were getting pretty, uh, hectic and I, more money was just being spent on various different things I needed for the boat. Um, I, I said to myself, if I had known about all this beforehand, I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have signed up. But I think that's the essence to adventure. Uh, you know, we get this spark, we get this idea to go and do something cool, and we need to just do that, or we need to we need to stay true to that little inspiration. Um, and it's just after that that all the fear and the doubt and the sensibilities come in, where we think to ourselves, well, no, I can't do that because. X, Y, and Z, and there's always going to be an excuse for the reason not to take on an adventure, and there's always going to be doubt. And like I, I really try and focus on the inspiration and the spark, and and to try and stay true to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you alluded to um, not liking the term addiction when it comes to your adventure, and I completely get that. Um, I like that you choose the term passion instead, but I have to think that, or I have to wonder if there's a still a link, you know, with the, the dark days and the addiction that you dealt with, with narcotics and alcohol, do you think that had any role in allowing you to take the, the jumps and the gambles, you know, the big leaps and the gambles to do something like buy yourself a boat instead of buy yourself a house and jump into it before you really know how it's going to end up? Do you think that that part of your personality uh, lends itself to that, or do you think you developed that ability because um, because of what you had dealt with, and it's more of a hey, I want to live life, and it's time to invest in myself. I mean, which way do you see that? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, great question. Um, I think it's a bit of both. It's definitely um, definitely on the side of look, you know, I've I've been given the second chance. Um, I didn't slip through the cracks. I managed to get clean and sober. You know, there's a lot of what ifs, um, you know, coming from where I came from, you know, I was suicidal just after getting clean and I didn't really like myself very much. So I suppose like I didn't really want to settle for mediocrity. You know, if I was going to get clean and stay clean, I wanted to try and live my life to the fullest. I wanted to try and have all these cool experiences and just keep having the notch notches there. I think uh, where the addiction comes into it is probably a little bit in the case of that I always want more and that's that's kind of tough you know like I remember remarking that uh when I got a when I got a cra across Lake Baikal you know it's actually 
it's funny it, it was actually this day last year that I finished on Lake Baikal um it was it was St Patrick's Day uh, 2016 so you know I crossed 440 miles on my own dragging this uh you know 125 pound sled and I got right to the end of this barren little town called Ningarsk on the very tip of the northern end of Lake Baikal and I sat in my uh, my little sled and I was just uh just saying, wow, I did it. And then I started looking, kind of, I could just see there was like a, a frozen marshland. And I thought to myself, I could probably go a bit further. And then I <laughs> like reel it in and go, hang on a minute. He just did like 440 miles right? Oh, in like a very, very quick time. You know, I actually ran out of food in the last few days. I was eating less than a thousand calories. It was, you know, it was, I was pretty beat up at that stage. But of course I was always like, oh, you could probably do a bit more. But so, um, you know, I recognize that's probably the addiction side of me. And I just got to keep an eye on that. And I, I suppose it's just about awareness, um, you know, that I just need to sort of go, okay, you know, you've done enough. Give yourself a pat on the back and, you know, yeah, you can plan some other stuff. But yeah, you don't need to do any more miles. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and I have to wonder, I'm no psychologist, but I... You know, I have, I do not have a, an addictive personality. I've never, you know, gotten into smoking or, or drugs or alcohol to the, to the extent that, you know, I ever had a dependence or felt like I needed it. Um, but when you talk about getting to the end of your, your trek a, across by call and looking at the horizon and thinking, I could keep going here, I think, I think we all have that. I have to think that we all have that when we get to the end of such an adventure and, your adventures, I mean, mine pale in comparison, and I still get that feeling. Like, I don't want to go back to mm. reality, so to speak. I want to keep going here. And I don't know if that's an addiction or you're just so in love with what you just did and your your time out there and, and what you've experienced that how could you possibly want to stop it and go yeah. back to reality, you know? So, yeah, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's part of part addiction or just simply in innate in all of us as human beings. Yeah, I think you're right there. I suppose it's just I remember um my father nearly he he passed away actually a month before I left and you know it was a tough time obviously just before the row but the uh, previous to that about a year and a half before that he he was really ill and he was actually about to pretty much pass away and he was he'd all but given up he had a lot of um mental health issues and he was very bad uh, manic depressive and he was very very low and he actually wanted to die like as in that's how bad his depression was and I remember he didn't he didn't pass away at the time he he managed to hang on for a while longer and things got a bit better but you know I remember people saying to me oh isn't he so determined you know isn't he isn't there you know they kind of remarked at his sort of resilience and you know, I didn't see any of that, you know, in him at the time. I just saw him wanting to go. And what I did see, though, is I just saw life. And I suppose I just took a step back and I really thought to myself, life wants to live. You know, we just see it all around us. You see like a a, a little weed going through a crack. You know, it's it's an undeniable fact, you know, philosophically speaking, that, that life wants to live, you know. And I think for me, when I go out and do these things, and I just, I feel like that I'm tapped into that, you know, and I'm, that's the life coming through me. And, and, you know, I suppose if I'm cooked up in an office or I'm doing something I don't want to do, I, I find that that bit is crushed inside me, you know, and I think, yeah, maybe that's what it is with the adventure stuff that it's just, it's that, that passion's coming through that life is really wanting to express itself in in those forms. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's obviously what keeps you turning back, you know, to the, to the addiction, to the, to the drugs and alcohol. So, man, I mean, I hope that anybody listening in that, that may find themselves in a similar situation can 
derive that inspiration from your story and from the story of stories of others who have uh, similar tales to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to set out, go find your adventure. And, uh, you know, and hopefully you too will, will find yourself on the path of, of trading uh, addiction for passion. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, if you haven't already done so, make sure you visit our ASP member deals site. It's at members.adventuresportspodcast.com. You can subscribe and get awesome deals on everything adventure. We're even including a free 180 stove with an annual membership. So check it out. It's at members.adventuresportspodcast.com, or you can find a link on the right side of the Adventure Sports Podcast site. It's a great way to support the show and get some great deals for yourself. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Okay, so you've you've decided to buy your boat, and you're entering into the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Um, yeah. Now, tell me about this race. It's there's not a lot of people racing in it. I think you had twelve teams, and you had already alluded to there were groups of you know solar, I mean solo rowers, uh, and then teams of three and teams of four. So, tell me a little bit about the race. Um, and where you started, where you ended up, how long it took, and and just kind of the the whole goal. Yeah, so it's um, it's been going on in one form or another since 1997, on and off. Um, kind of every couple of years is randomly organized, and it's been going on now for the last few years pretty solidly. As there's a company called Atlantic Campaigns that organizes it, so it's starting to starting to really pick up um they used to have it every two years and this is the first year that they had it you know um yearly and it's hopefully continuing on so it's it's starting to become a a bigger and bigger thing um so it's yeah it's a, a three thousand nautical mile uh, rowing race which is uh, quite ridiculous lasts uh, you know anything between 35 and you know 90 days for some people so it's a pretty stretched out race begins in la gomera in the canaries and then goes across the atlantic to antigua 
So it follows the trade wind route, which is the classic sort of sailing route. Um, it's the probably the most straightforward uh, kind of ocean crossing that you can get um, because of the trade winds that blow um, for this part of the year. So from about October through to April, May, the trade winds blow. They're pretty consistent. So you've got a good, a decent enough wind behind you. Um, and then over to Antigua in the Caribbean, and it's out of hurricane season, so it's it's, it's a good time to do it. Um, it's still pretty hot, um, which isn't a bad thing for someone coming from Ireland. But uh, yeah, so I set off from there on the 14th of December, 2000's just, just gone. And um, I spent 49 and a half days uh, on my own, uh, rowing. And um, out of the 12 teams, I actually came in third, so there was only four solos and uh, I managed to come third overall so the two four-man teams beat me and I managed to beat um, sorry to say an American team by about an hour and a half there was a, a trio behind me um, and then a few other teams of twos and threes and fours um, and there's actually a guy still out there there's a guy who broke his rudder and he's about 100 miles to go uh, he's in a He's in a pure class boat, so there's two different types of boats in this race. Uh, there's one called a, a, a concept class, and then there's the traditional ocean rowing boat. So I had a concept class boat, so just without any rowing, it goes faster anyway. It's, uh, it catches a bit of wind. Um, the main cabin is quite big, it catches a bit of wind, and also has a flat bottom hull, so it really surfs very well in the, in the, in the ocean swells. So that was something that I had a bit of experience in um so from my surfing background so i quite enjoyed that bit about it uh managed to get up to 15 knots at one stage flying down waves wow yeah so yeah i mean it, that's kind of the the bit of information on the race but yeah it's uh it was an incredible uh 49 and a half days out there well i think it's awesome because you had said um i asked you how long you expected that to take and you said your goal would be the 50 day mark and you yeah. you beat it by half a day. How cool is that? <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Look, it was it was tough because early on in the race we had a really good start. Um straight off the bat we had some really strong trade winds and we were absolutely flying for the first sort of week, ten days, and I was over I was averaging over sixty miles a day. Um and then I was thinking, Oh wow, I'm gonna like break forty five days here and then there was this kind of real funky period in the middle when the wind when the winds died down and they came from kind of every other direction and then we had a lot of currents that kind of came up so there was you know a lot of you know there weren't major currents but you're in an ocean rowing boat it affects you even a 0.5 knot current mm-hmm. would uh would definitely affect you so um between that and you know the weird winds it slowed me right down and and uh i, I actually had a 60 60 mile lead on the on uh, on the next team behind me another uh trio um of guys, South African guys. And then the American guys started to really catch up after that. They had a kind of weird start. They had a lot of power issues and, you know, they just had a while to get into their groove. But once they did, they started to really pick catch, catch. And then I think about three weeks from the end, they just, every day they started to take miles out of me. And then the winds came back in seven days from the end, a few hundred miles out. And they were within 10 miles of me by then at that stage. And I spent the last week just trying to hang on, and I managed to hang on. They actually were an hour and a half, two hours behind me in the end. It was less than 10 miles. It was a real uh, cat and mouse battle. Um, um, but yeah, it just 
it just I managed I in that middle period I didn't think I was going to break 55 days just based on my averages but things really sped up at the end and you know the reason why I was able to go uh, as fast as those guys you know most people just see it as you know they've got more manpower uh, and there's only one of me which is a very valid point but my boat was a lot lighter and then when the winds really kick in um what happens is I get a bit I get a good push when I'm resting and that makes all the difference because they have got they have guys rowing 24 7 whereas obviously I have to rest but I really pushed the boundaries for myself in regards to sleep deprivation out there I was really on the edge of uh, what was possible for myself I was probably some days I was rowing 17 18 hours and I was only sleeping three hours a night um so I really 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 pushed hard and you know that last week I I just had to kind of take it up a notch which I didn't think I could because I was already pretty beat up after you know six and a half weeks of of rowing and uh I just you know the guys pushed me really hard right to the end and I actually rowed 14 hours in the last the last push was 14 hours straight because uh, they were really catching me and I just wanted to try and hang on to that that third spot and to break the 50 days but you know so um yeah it was incredible they didn't they actually did really well in the end because they were the first trio to row the atlantic so they came out of it with uh with with that accolade even though i did pip them so <laughs> well that's awesome that you did uh you did pull it out and uh and beat them in because you know i get it i get the uh the lighter boat and uh it allows you to flow while you're while you're taking a break but at the same time well, i mean just one guy rowing that entire time in a 14 hour stretch i'm sure none of those guys put in a 14 hour stretch and they got to rotate out but for yeah. you, you can't, you know, how could you possibly let them overtake you? So it just drives you, you know, yeah. further and further into it. Yeah, it's just the competitive kind of um, part of me took over. And yeah, <laughs> cause I've, been in, I've been in third place for, you know, most of the race. I think it was after the first few days I got into third. So, you know, I kind of thought to myself, oh, I don't want to lose it. But then a part of me was like, well, it's okay if they beat you because you're, you know, you're a solo guy. People are still going to respect you. But yeah, look, I just decided to get pretty dogged, and um, yeah, it was it was an incredible experience to finish in Antigua. We finished at night time, and I remember coming in, and it was just a, it's very hectic because you're trying to you're trying to make it into this kind of harbor, this kind of bluffs on either side of it, and you know you're seeing land for the first time in fifty days, but you know, you want to kind of celebrate, but you're still really focused on the navigation and making it in. And I remember coming in and rounding this headland and. Uh, the wind kind of swung around from the other direction, and I, I immediately got this this smell of of vegetation and and land, which I hadn't smelt in fifty days, and it was a very bizarre kind of blast <laughs> to my senses. I you know I, all I could smell was uh, sea sea air and bo. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't wash. Well, I had a few swims, but uh, yeah. So just coming in, and then it, uh, you finish in English Harbour in the south of Antigua, and it's it's just full of super yachts and these guys are setting off their horns and uh there's just people all around you with you know shouting and screaming and my sister was there and my family and uh, friends and they'd flown over and it was just a, a hugely overwhelming experience there was a big crowd gathered and you know to finish at the dock there and and just celebrate with the with the irish flag and i remember stepping off the boat and nearly fallen over because i you know i just hadn't i didn't have my land legs it was uh <laughs> I spent all this time on this little unstable boat that I couldn't actually properly stand up in. The boat literally moves around that much all the time that you're, you you can't really stand up unaided. 
So as soon as I put my feet on uh, dry land, I, I nearly fell over and I spent the next two days um, wobbling around the place looking like a drunk person. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, you probably have to crawl around a lot. Well, I can relate to the to the not having your land legs. Um, but what I can't imagine is is experiencing on that small of a boat. I come from a, a sailing family. My parents had a, a 43-foot sailboat and spending you know, a week out on that thing and then stepping off to the dock the first time, I would even feel it then. But, you know, you're talking 50 days on a boat that's getting rocked around a lot more than that. It's got to be a, a complete blow to the senses to to have to try and walk on land and you have all the horns going off and you have all the crowds and you have the smell of the, the trees and everything coming off the island that, uh, you know, after 50 days of just hearing water lap up against the side of the boat, and that's pretty much the only sound you get other than maybe a passing plane, then yeah, that's got to be a complete blow to the senses. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was crazy because I actually didn't, yeah, I didn't see very much out there. Um, There's just a whole lot of nothing out there, and I suppose that was part of the allure to me that it was just this great vast open space that I wanted to go out and just be in and yeah, it was it was incredible. I I had some really cool moments out there. There was uh, there was the times when the the sun was setting at nighttime. I mean, I I saw fifty sunsets and fifty sunrises. You know, every single one spectacularly different. You know, as I rode in the morning, I was looking looking east, looking at the sun coming up, and then in the evening it was setting behind me. And I remember it used to illuminate the clouds in the far distance. You know, as the sun was setting, and it used to give the place such a huge expanse like the clouds just looked like they were hundreds of miles away and it just made the place seem even bigger and then some nights uh you know going through the moon cycles out there there was obviously no moon at times and and when it was a clear night the milky way was just absolutely jumping out of the sky you know there was no obviously no light pollution you know i could see these you know huge bands of stars and i could even see stars almost at eye level you know i i had never seen that before because there was no light pollution or no light on the horizon so right. i i almost look i used to see in the evenings just as it was getting dark i started to think it was a ship in the distance i was like no that's actually just a star coming up over the horizon so yeah it was it was, it was incredible yeah it's got to be an amazing experience that you uh alone will be able to take that to your grave and there's so many people that that will never get that experience and for you to have had to uh experienced it and be able to take it with you forever I mean, yeah. that's uh that in and of itself is worth the entire thing i gotta think yeah and that's a that's a good point you know that sort of perspective that i that i tried to have out there no matter how bad it got like uh, i think the the whole sort of pr thing with with this row is obviously it's the world's toughest row and a lot of the media that you'll see is you know all about that and you know i think it's a it is tough don't get me wrong it's 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 not an easy thing to do but you know, I just gotta gotta put this into perspective. I paid willingly to go out there. Um, you know, a lot of people in the world are living hand to mouth, and you know, this is this is a privileged thing that I'm doing. So, really, no matter how bad I think it is out there, you know, I, you know, I've got my food, my supplies. I've got 90 days of food. You know, I've got my water maker. You know, I've got food. I've got water. I've got a bed. You know, really, you know, all I've got to row, all I've got to do is row, and yeah, you know, it get it gets very monotonous at times. It's boring. It's it's good. It's bad. Whatever. But I suppose it's just having that perspective that um, you know, to try and enjoy it and and, and experience it because I am very very lucky to be to be doing that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I did want to point this out because I've already established you're a pretty humble guy and you probably won't bring it up, but I understand that you crushed the previous Irish record of 118 days. So by, by doing it in less than 50, I mean, that's a, a huge difference. And you've also set the record to be the, uh, the fastest solo competitor in the uh, Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. So congratulations on those two points. Yeah, and I suppose, yeah, the, the media definitely picked up on that. And just to clarify as well, you know, I was in the concept boat. Sean McGowan, the, the guy who did it in 118 days, was in a traditional boat. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you, it's the fastest overall, but I just, I don't want to take away from what Sean did. And it is a contentious point within ocean rowing because the concept boats have only been around for a few years. And, right. and you know, there's some, there are some purists out there that, um, you know, kind of would frown a little bit at people trying to claim that they're the fastest boat, you know, whereas, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different class. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to be clear on that myself, you know, I was going out there, um, you know, 50 days is long enough for me. I didn't really fancy, um, you know, making it any harder. <laughs> like, it's funny that I was thinking about it the last day, you know, um, you know, when I, when I went across Lake Baikal, you know, I was like on foot and I met a lot of people that were skating it and I met a lot of people that were biking it and every one of them remarked to me like, what are you doing doing it on foot? And it was always about, I was like, I kind of said to myself, well, yeah, I suppose I was kind of being a purist in that sense, you know, but um, I, I wasn't, a, I'm not a hundred percent purist in, in regards to ocean rowing. I definitely enjoyed the additional push that I got from the winds and uh, yeah, this, the, the capability of the boat and the surf was absolutely amazing. Like I said, being able to get up to 15 knots uh, down some of these waves is, is makes it a, a really fun experience. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Well, good for you for clarifying that. It was, uh, it was definitely honorable. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. So how do you deal with the 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 mental uh, attitude while out there? Do you find it difficult or is it a matter of you just convince yourself, you know, look, hey, you're out here doing something amazing. Look at the sunrise, look at the sunset, look at the stars. You know, <laughs> is that how you balance it out or or is it is it tough or do you have bad times? It's tough, you know, rowing you know, Lorone and Ocean is is definitely a metaphor for life. It's it's it, you've got the whole experience and you have it in heightened. Uh, you know, the the whole experience can be heightened. The emotions can be heightened. So you know, the, that sort of perspective stuff can only work sometimes. Other times, you're just down and you you just got to be down, and that's just part of it. I think for me, it's just about um, trying to accept that. Yeah, look, you can't be 
you know, trying to convince yourself of positivity the whole time, I suppose. This is where I think a lot of people go wrong in the modern world, that it's just this real, like, hardcore, like, I must be positive all the time. And, you know, I go out there and I don't, I'm not this steely-eyed adventurer where I'm, you know, always up and trying to stay positive. You know, there's times when I'm down and that's just part of the experience. It's, you know, and there's times when I'm slamming the oars off the side of the boat and I'm having to stop rowing and just go in and have a lie down and, you know, things are kind of going a bit haywire. So I suppose it's just being aware that that's happening and just be okay with it. Because I think that if you try and really try and change that, it just takes up more energy. So I think overall, um, mentally, it is a huge mental battle. Um, it's It really is all about the mental side of things. People ask me all about the training and stuff like that. And, you know, the training is important, but I think, you know, physically you know, you can go a lot more than you think. And it's all about the mind being kind of in control of the body and, and in control of the situation. So um, I think for me, what I just did is I broke things down a lot. I, I, I worked in a sort of shift system. I ended up doing uh, three hours on, one hour off. So I started, you know, sort of early in the mornings, around five in the morning, and I did three hours on, one hour off. And, you know, I just focused on those three hours, trying to get into a good rhythm. You know, as I, as I sat on my, on my rowing position, I had a I had a deck repeater um, on the back deck and I had a compass. So I was watching my heading. I was watching my course over ground. I was watching my speed. So I was usually trying to like keep my speed maybe above two knots, three knots, depending on what the winds were doing. So I'd really try and focus on that. I might be listening to a podcast, just keep it in the, in the, in that period. And then just really look forward to that hour off, you know, that I was off for that hour that I was going to eat something. I was going to have a nap and then just kind of starting all over again and just, doing all that day to day and um you know just and just trying to not have too much expectations because i found that out there at the end of the day i can really think to myself you know okay i'm gonna do 60 miles today and then halfway through the day i've only done like you know 20 and i'm already kind of a little bit depressed so it's just trying to lower my expectations all the time because i think what i found out is that really the ocean decides what happens you know you know even with the the forecasts that I got, you know, I had a really good weather guy. His name's Levin Brown. He's he's an absolute legend of an ocean rower. He's he spent more probably more time than anyone in a rowing boat. So he he did my weather, and you know, I spoke to him most days. You know, as the person who I was closest with, um, the most on on the row. And you know, there was days even when he you know couldn't get an exact forecast because what would happen is there'd be a um, you know, a sort of say fifteen to twenty knot forecast day and it looks you know i'm thinking okay i can do 50 60 miles today looks good but then what happens you get these squalls that come through localized sort of thunderstorms convective storms and they'd kind of you'd get a really good push for maybe half an hour an hour with the wind and then what will happen is they kind of blow the wind out and then you'd have just this kind of funky kind of you know doldrum effect for a few hours and that could last up to anything up to nine hours and then if you add in a little current on top of that you're down to like barely doing a knot so that's incredibly frustrating because you're kind of like relying on this forecast. You're thinking, oh, well, I should be doing this. And then you're thinking, well, hang on a sec. You know, this is what's happening right now. So at the end of the day, it was always coming back to it. Well, you know, the boat, the boat is generally pointed in the direction I want to be going. I am moving. It might be as fast as I want to be moving. So I just need to keep keep that going. And it just, it was a constant battle in mentally between all that sort of stuff and yeah, uh, real day to day thing, you know. So yeah, yeah, I bet I do hear a, a column, a common element in there, in that these you know people that are doing long adventures like this find 
find that they can get through it mentally by basically giving themselves little treats throughout the day um, or maybe at the end of the day. And, you know, like you were saying, it may be, you know, just the, the rest and the sleep may be enough, but some people find a little piece of, you know, the best piece of candy or something that they, they really drives them, you know, or some little psychological treat. So I think just literally taking it one day at a time sounds like what you do, just get through it. In, eventually yeah. you're going to get through the 50 days. Absolutely. Yeah. On, on the candy thing there I had, so I had 90 days of food. I'd have like 5,000 calories a day in these sort of packs. So I had like, I had four expedition meals and then I had like these 2000 calorie packs full of like nuts, uh, you know, dried fruit candy. And I actually didn't bring that much candy. <clears throat> I probably bought like, uh, I don't know, 15 to 20 big bags of it. And I had it all in these different packs. And I ended up after about a week, I ended up raiding through <laughs> probably <laughs> this candy because I was just really had that sugar, uh, you know, I wanted that sugar, those sugary things. And, um, yeah, but yeah, you just, you find different bits and pieces. And I, I had a lot of food, like 90 days is, is, is a lot. So I was a, I didn't have to have, uh, be as disciplined as I would have had to have been saying like by Cal or any of the other stuff. I, I had an abundance of food and I actually ended up, um, emptying out, um, a lot of food towards the end because I was so desperate to try and stay stay ahead of these uh, the American oarsman team that I was trying to I was ditching weight wherever I could so there was a there was a lot of uh, freeze dried chili con carne and spaghetti bolognese gone to the uh, gone to Neptune the sea god yeah <laughs> the fish were eating well in those last few days yeah. <laughs> that's awesome so yeah. you also had a um, you had a a link to raising money. Um, yeah, f with this trip. So tell me a little bit about that. Two different organizations. Yeah, so I uh, I've been partnered with uh, a, a charity called Cancer Care West um, for previous challenges, and um, it's just a local charity here in Galway. They help people, um, you know, families of people with cancer who might be able to afford it to come to the town from the rural areas to get treatment. And they have like a, a place where people can stay and their families. So. Yeah, I've been I've been doing stuff with them, raising a bit of money, and then I partnered with this other charity for this in particular, which is it's called Jigsaw. And it's a mental health for for young people, so it's it's like a they've drop-in centers all over the country, and it's just for anyone aged between the age of sixteen, I think twenty twenty-three, twenty-four, um, just a safe place to come talk about your problems. You know, uh, if you have a drink problem, just get pointed in the right direction, um, and it's just a really cool service. Um, for young people and and you know I didn't have that sort of stuff when I was younger and I was lucky to not slip through the cracks so I suppose it's just it fits really well with my own personal story and um I was really proud to be to be supporting those guys and and have them along for the for the ride and they they've been really great so far and I'm probably we are going to be working uh, closely with them in the future so yeah the charity side of it's really cool um I didn't raise like as much as I thought I'd raise I actually um was was more focused on the awareness which was really cool so we, we got a lot more um you know through my own story of sharing that like i spoke about there with you and um, just the idea that you know it's okay to talk to people um you know and, and and it's really important that we i suppose we're responsible for for our youth um you know you know and you know i i had you know i suppose it, you just think like what 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 really went wrong in society that I thought at 19 years old that suicide and, and alcohol and drugs was was a solution. You know, it just it really it's really scary when I think of it. You know, because um, you know I I suppose it's different in American culture. We're we're a little bit more reserved in Ireland. I think we don't really tell our 
our, our children that we can that they can do stuff and and I suppose we'd like to take a leaf out of your tree, you know, that it's it's important to tell people that they can do things. And, you know, I wasn't told anything like that uh, as a youth. You know, I, I grew up with, like, quite low self-esteem, low self-worth. And, you know, evidently I, I ended up wanting to, you know, nearly kill myself because of it. So, um, you know, and, I, and now I've achieved a whole bunch of stuff, um, you know, all these adventures, which, which is cool. But, uh, you know, I didn't think at the time that was possible. So I suppose now it's about, you know, trying to pass that message on just to, to, to young people that, you know, so much is possible, be it, you know, whatever it is you want to do. It doesn't have to be all the, the stuff that I do. Yeah, absolutely. I think the awareness is is the most important thing. And I'm glad you brought it up. I just uh, interviewed a guy that rode. He had uh, similar problems with uh, drugs and alcohol in college. And he finally kicked it and he wanted to give back to the organization that helped him through it. So he rode a 50cc scooter from Colorado all the way up to Alaska, a 4,600-mile ride on a little tiny scooter. And his goal was the same thing, to raise money, but also to raise awareness and let others know, you know, kids know that that if they find themselves in these shoes, that there are places they can turn and they can talk to people about it. And I think that's so important because you're right. There's a, you know, big part of society just wants to keep things secret and you know we're the same thing over here we just people just don't talk about it and uh, i think mm. a lot of people think that they're alone in their struggle when if they just open their eyes and talk to a few people they'll realize there are a lot more people around them that are also dealing with uh, the same or similar struggles and that's yeah. all it takes is just talking a little bit absolutely yeah that's that's really cool i like that yeah yeah, yeah. so let's talk about the the plans to row back now you know if you <laughs> listeners thought maybe gavin has uh, uh reached his pinnacle of this um he's actually sending his boat dorian i think is what you call it um, uh, Dor- actually we pronounce it it's it's a yeah it's a tough one it's an irish it's actually the name of my niece and yeah it's it, if you look at it you wouldn't think it's, it's pronounced Duran, but it's yes yeah, that's how it is <laughs> Duran. okay yeah i was gonna ask <laughs> yeah. you where where it came from so yeah. you're uh, sending the boat back to New York City, and you have plans to row that back home to Galloway again. Yeah. And uh, so that's what this uh, coming up in June, pretty soon here. So why? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of I got this boat, I got to figure out something to do with it, or is there a, is there a more purpose to it? Um, a little bit of both. I think I had the idea um, to, I suppose, row home would be the would be the term, and and to come back to Galway. Um, just had it, you know, before I started and I didn't say it to anyone. I was like, oh, yeah, I can't really tell anyone this is a bit crazy. And then I said to myself, right, well, let's just kind of deal with one side of the Atlantic first. So, you know, I kind of was halfway through the row and I kind of asked myself the question, you know, what I would I be up for doing? And I kind of was like, yeah, I'm kind of enjoying this experience. And I said, yeah. And then I waited until like a really bad day when I had like, you know, bad sort of wind direction the waves were smashing me inside the boat I wasn't really getting anywhere I was just kind of getting knocked all over the place and again I answered I asked myself the question and I, and it was still a yes so um I was pretty much decided sort of about halfway over that I was going to ship the boat from Antigua to New York and row her um across the North Atlantic and I suppose for me it's just a, a really really just seemed like a really cool adventurous thing to do it just um you know so the history of ocean rowing is that the, the two first Norwegians, uh, Harbo and Samuelson, uh, rowed from Battery Park on the tip of Manhattan, and they mm-hmm. and they ended up in in the UK, um, to Silly uh, back in 1896. So it's just it's it's where it all started, 
Um, and then there's also another meaning aside to it in that there's huge connection with Ireland and uh, and New York and, and particularly Battery Park. It's where all the, the, the immigrants came ashore. It's where the famine ships came ashore. Um, and I suppose I'm just going to draw that line a little bit and then obviously come back to my hometown where I'm from, you know, the North Atlantic. Um, I grew up on these shores. You know, I swim every day, even though the water's freezing at the moment. I'm, well, I wouldn't call it a swim. I jump in. The water's probably like... <laughs> not even 40 degrees at the moment, but, um, yeah, I go for a dip in there. Like I surf, you know, I've rode all around these coasts and stuff. So it's just a, it's just a huge kind of meaning to me. And, uh, you know, for everyone at home, it's, it's really cool as well. Obviously it's a little bit more tangible me coming directly back to Ireland. So yeah, it's, it's to do it in, in 12 months as well to row both ways in 12 months is, is kind of ridiculous. It's been done before by a French guy. Um, so, but yeah, the North Atlantic is a, is a whole different beast altogether. Um, the trade wind route, um, has been rowed, I think 130 odd times solo. Um, the North Atlantic route has been rowed 15 times. So it's wow. you know, drastically different. And that's because obviously it's a lot stormy up the side of the ocean. This is where the, this is where the low pressures generate. We've got one rolling through right now. Um, you know, it's, we've had, uh, sort of 40 knot winds today and you know the seas are pretty big so yeah i mean it's 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 a different ball game altogether then you've got the added extra of um coming off uh, the sort of uh, the grand banks is all the fog there there's the north atlantic drift coming from the uh, the gulf stream there's there's like eddies of current there and stuff so it's yeah, it's it's definitely a tough proposition, and the fact that I've just got off the ocean to go back out there is a little bit daunting, but I'm I'm definitely up for the challenge. Yeah, it should be pretty exciting. I've uh, I did interview a guy by the name of Peter Bray um, way back. Yes. Peter was back on episode ninety three, I guess, and he had yes. rode over from Cornwall. So I take it you're you're familiar with him. Um, yeah, I I did listen to that episode. I actually I forgot to tell you I had a ton of these podcasts. I listened to them on the Atlantic, so I've oh, I've good. Been, you've been, You've been in my ear, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. You might have gotten uh, it done in 40 days if you've not been listening to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I definitely used uh, used plenty of the, the 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 episodes to you know get me through a different hour, different shifts here and there. So good. thanks for that. <laughs> Glad to hear that. You're, you wouldn't be the only adventurer out there that we've interviewed that we find is uh, is out on their yeah. next adventure, listening to more of the Adventure Sports Podcast. So I'm glad you said that. Thanks for the yeah. for the plug. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, back to the Atlantic. Yeah, he had uh, he had met up with a uh, massive storm, and I guess the uh, that time he had he was coming over. And you could probably remember the story better than I. Um, but he was coming over and met up with a massive storm with other crew members, and ended up having to save a guy after the boat had had overturned um yeah. but yeah i guess it can get uh pretty nasty up there by comparison so i hope yeah. you uh i hope you are safe and uh and things go well i can't wait to uh to follow this one along yeah i'm, I'm kind of up in the safety i'm bringing a an extra rudder i'm bringing a third set of oars i've got two sea anchors which are are these giant parachutes that you drop into the water and they come out, they let you let them out like on 70 meters of line, which stops you from going backwards in the middle of a storm. So you can kind of um, hang off this uh, sea anchor in, in a storm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking lots of additional stuff. I've got, I'm putting in an extra solar panel and an extra battery because there's less sun up, up, up this side of the Atlantic, as I well know. Um, so yeah, just extra, extra bits here and there and just trying to be as safe as possible um, for, for this, for this return route. 
Okay, good. And this yeah. one is is completely solo. You don't have any other racers out there. There's no uh, a boat, you know, just kind of checking on things. This is just you heading back to Gal- Galway, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, it's completely solo, um, unsupported, unassisted uh, um, crossing. So yeah, like I'll have a weather guy again, and hopefully I'm, I'm looking to get some um, support uh, around New York. Um, my boat's going to be in uh, Liberty Landing Marina. Um, yeah, just on the New Jersey side there, just a stone's throw from uh, Manhattan. So, yeah, big shout out to all the American listeners uh, to, you know, come down and uh, come down and see me off maybe, yeah, um, and hopefully the end of May around that time, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, go follow Gavin. Um, he's got his website up now. It's gavinhennigan.com. It's G-A-V-A-N-H-E-N-N-I-G-A-N.com. He yeah. keeps you up to date. He's got a blog there. Of course, uh, all the social media, you can find him as Solo Gav. It's S-O-U-L-O-G-A-V. And you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by that name. Um, go follow him. Keep an eye on what he's doing. If you're around the New York area, run down to Battery Park and help give the guy a good uh, good American send-off. It's, uh, it's going to be an amazing trip, and I can't wait to watch you do it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks a million. Yeah, and uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, if the, any American friends, uh, adventure friends are there, definitely come see me. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, good deal, Gavin. Um, I wish you all the luck and be safe out there. And we will follow along and we will root for your uh, your success and your, your quick return to Galway. Excellent. Thanks, Travis. All Great right. to be back on the show. Thanks for your time. And again, happy St. Paddy's Day. Nice one. Same to you. All right. Hey, if you've been enjoying the Adventure Sports Podcast, do me a favor, go over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a rating and a review. It always helps. Join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. And if you're not yet a member of the ASP Member Deals site, go check it out. It's members.adventuresportspodcast.com. It's a way for you guys to help support the show while you're getting great content, but you also get some great deals at the same time. So check it out. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode, get out and try something new. 